And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Joining me in this hour is Dr. Carrie Gress. She got her doctorate in philosophy from Catholic University of America. She's the author of, I think, 10 books now, uh, including books, Theology of Home, a few volumes there, and The Anti-Mary Exposed. She's also editor at the Catholic Women's Online Magazine, Theology of Home, and she's a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. You can follow her work at carriegress.com, that's G-R-E-S-S, and theologyofhome.com. Her most recent book is The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. Carrie, thanks for joining me again. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's always great to be on with you, Al. Let's start with the question, what was the problem, what was the problem that feminism Mm -hmm. was supposed to be the solution for? Yeah. Well, feminism has really been trying to improve women's lives. And, um, you know, as I researched this book, I went back to the first wave of feminism and and really thought, you know, I'm going to find some nice stuff there and then I can kind of abandon the first wave and move on to the second (laughs) wave, which, of course, you know, everybody says it's been hijacked. Um, But I I found some, you know, radically different data than I was expecting to find and um, really discovered that, that a lot of the errors that were made in the second wave actually got their foundation in the first wave. And I think one of those errors was instead of trying to help women as women, um, feminism has really pushed this idea of trying to make women more like men. And, you know, when you start seeing the movement from that question from almost the very beginning, it it really makes sense, the whole trajectory and how we've gotten to this point where we can't define what a woman is. And we also, um, you know, a lot of women are being pushed into being men. We're seeing this with the whole trans craze. So anyway, it's it's definitely all... um, you know, been very loaded from the beginning, I think. Uh, the word patriarchy, what does that mm-hmm. mean? So patriarchy is this typical I- idea of Judeo-Christian concept, very ancient uh, in terms of the order that we have um, God instilled in the world. It's, you know, it's God, patriarchy, uh, or the man, um, the woman who's a helpmate, um, and then they have dominion over creation. And, uh, you know, this was one of the most startling concepts that I, I discovered, but not just in, in this book, but also I think it was pretty evident when I, in my book, The Anti-Mary Exposed, but um, just seeing how feminism really turned that on its head. And again, back in the 1800s, you had people who were tinkering with Genesis and trying to make uh, the temptation of Eve into something that was good, where the serpent yes. is giving Eve an opportunity. And when you see it through that lens, you can you realize, right. you know, you've got this serpent who's talking to Eve, and she has there, therefore dominion over everything. Yeah. And um, men and God, of course, are he's there to down. elevate her consciousness. <laughs> yes, exactly. It was yeah. the very first um, consciousness raising event. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. think it's exactly right. Um, so anyway, but um, yes, ever since really the, the, um, the well, really, you can look at egalitarianism, which you can see very early in the 1800s being, playing a role in uh, this idea of sm- smashing the patriarchy and trying to um, really unseat men from any kind of authority that they have, whether it's in the household, um, e- even this idea of, of hierarchy. And of course, you right. know, the, the church is a hierarchy, but so is the military. Yeah. All of those things are, are part and parcel of what um, are considered smashing the patriarchy yeah. and the authority of men. Well, I really want, I do want to trace the history here because you've done a great job. And, um, mm-hmm. and uh, there are lots of names uh, to get acquainted yeah. with. <laughs> 
But I had an experience. It uh, had to be it had to be almost thirty years ago now, where I my producer was a young woman from a well-known uh, Christian college, mm-hmm. and we were talking about um, what is what is woman, what is man. And I mentioned, I said, well, certainly what's distinctive about woman is that she can bear life, be a mother. And this young lady was absolutely insulted that mm-hmm. I would refer to uh, woman or mother as uh, you know part part of the essential definition of woman right. I, and mm-hmm. this was again a there's a good christian uh, young lady but she mm-hmm. found that to be insulting yeah yeah wow no and i'm dealing with this a lot it's really interesting to see how much anger and um and really just the you, you realize how much the word motherhood has been denigrated by the last 50 years. I mean, if you think about it, we haven't said anything good about motherhood for 50 years as a culture. Um, it's absolutely been supplanted with this idea of career. And, um, you know, that's a real problem, obviously, for Christians, because we're not called to careers. We're, we're called to vocations. We're yeah. called to the natural law, which is, you know, the propagation of children and their, their education. Um, you know, and men are called to be fathers. It's just in, this, in the same thing. They're not called to be workers, workers either. Work is what is a means to an end, but yeah. isn't isn't the end. And I think that that's th- these ideas have been many of them have been absorbed by um, Catholics in in very subtle ways that haven't been corrected. And I'm discovering that more and more, you know, as the weeks go by, as this once since this book has been released. Well, let's go back to the first feminist, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, uh, mm-hmm. 1759 to 1797. Uh, I venture to say many of our listeners uh, wouldn't pl- think of her as the, f- yeah. you know, the foremother of feminism. Yeah, no. Many probably Which, have never heard of her. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she was a, a thinker that was um, a contemporary of Thomas Paine. She was an English woman that was really ca- you know, captivated by the French Revolution and called herself a Republican in, in the sense of the, the, the French Republic, not in the contemporary sense of Republicanism. Um, so focused on eradicating the monarchy, um, making the state much more in, in control, um, and, you know, just really wanted to see radical change. She was also a, a friend of Thomas Paine, who he was very much focused on this idea of egalitarianism, and you can see that in her political writing. Um so she ends up writing a, a a piece called "A Vindication for the Rights of Woman," and this sort of has people look to as the you know first feminist document that that was written. Um, and it's it's very interesting. I mean, I highlight it in my book because of the fact that she is so focused on this idea of egalitarianism and really tearing down certainly monarchy, but also the church and um, military hi- hierarchy. All of that has to come down, and so that's. I, I think one of the, the main pieces that she brought out, the significant piece that she brought to what is sort of my working definition of feminism. So it's this idea of egalitarianism, smashing the patriarchy. Um, it was actually her husband, uh, William Godwin, whom she was married to for a very brief, very brief time. She died delivering their child, um, who is Mary Godwin, who became Mary Godwin Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein. Um, so... William Godwin, who's Mary Shelley's 
father, Mary Wollstonecraft's husband, um, he actually was very well-known anarchist and was very outspoken about um, the, the idea of free love or getting rid of um, any kind of uh, you know sexual mores that, uh, related to the family. But they decided and, to uh, marry? Yeah, isn't that the astounding thing? Yeah. I mean, it just <laughs> tells you, like, well, how convicted were they of these <laughs> ideas? But right. much of that, I think, was, was Mary Wollstonecraft already had a daughter out of wedlock, and I think she saw how hard it was for her child, mm. and so she didn't want to have another child out of wedlock and and have things compounded even further. Um, so I think that was much of the, the motivation. But, um, yeah, so the two of them get together. They have uh, their daughter... Mary Wollstonecraft, like I said, dies in um, child shortly after childbirth, and their daughter marries Percy Shelley, who's the English Enlightenment poet, and he takes the idea from the two ideas I just mentioned from uh, Wollstonecraft and Shelley, or from Godwin rather, um, the ideas of egalitarianism and free love, and he takes those and he adds to them this idea of the occult, and it's those three things that end up becoming. Um, what feminism really was throughout the 1800s. Obviously, there were pockets of, of feminists that were not, you know, weren't weren't focused on that. But if you look at the kind of the trajectory of feminism, you can see these three threads really up to our our modern day. Uh, name uh, those three threads again, would you? Yeah, egalitarianism, free love, and the occult. Wow. Um, and all of them are obviously incredibly vibrant in our, our current culture. But they started. In this this person that Percy Shelley made in his poetry, this woman named Cynthia, who was a this independent woman, and you know all of these three these pieces were all together to sort of promote her as this idealized woman that the feminists were were following the early feminists. So the 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 very first book that is in the feminist canon, a vindication of the rights mm-hmm. of woman. Uh, mm-hmm. This this wasn't this wasn't simply asking for uh, you know. The right to serve on a jury, or, or you know, to no, vote, no, no, or no. own property. Yeah. This was restructuring yeah. society. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that that's um, you know part of it is this idea of how do we restructure this. I mean, she even dedicated the book to Talleyrand, who had been uh, a cardinal and left the church when things got hot in um, in the French Revolution. And he was very much about restructuring society. So, yes, absolutely, that's really at the heart of this, is how do we change things dramatically? Because, you know, if you look around at that stage, it seemed like men had a much better life. And so it was just easier to start equating women more with men instead of, again, going down this trajectory of how do we help women as women. Yeah, yeah. Um, So you mentioned um, um, the Enlightenment, you also talk about the Romantic period, and uh, yeah. there's yeah. lots of parallels and lots of overlap uh, mm-hmm. between them. But mm-hmm. the, rom- the Romantic movement um, was, you know, push- pushing back against uh, the limitations of reason. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely anti-institutional. Um, mm-hmm. Give me some other characteristics of. The romantic movement and how it plays into this beginning of feminism. Yeah, um, no, I think that's a great question, and you know, a lot of these things are murky and hard to sort of unbraid from mm-hmm. each other and see these these different influences. And this is one of the reasons why I put so much history in to this book, so see, people could sort of see this pattern that that emerges from yeah. it. But um, 
So Wollstonecraft, of, of course, was a, was a romantic, and even her book, of Vindication of Rights of, of Woman, her, her own husband was critical of because he said, you know, this is just hard to read and it's a mess. And, you know, when you read it, it it's, it's really challenging. It's very um, emotive. There's a lot of repetition. Um, it, it's not systematic at all. And um, this was really something that characterized the romantics because they were they were pushing up against this idea of very strict logic of someone like Immanuel Kant. And they wanted um, the passion brought back into these and the mystery and all of these kinds. Not, not because they were had any kind of faith, but because they wanted these elements, uh, you know, to exist in in the world. And so they were sort of pushing for them to come back in. So you see this in Mary Wollstonecraft's um, sort of romantic notions. You see this in her husband's. He was also romantic in the sense of, you know, how do we ba- how do we disengage all of these oppressive mores from, from the culture? And then, of course, in, in their son-in-law, Percy Shelley, who's sort of quintessentially a, a romantic poet with all kinds of drama. I mean, this is a man whose life was just full of drama, much of it his own creation. Um, he was really just an, an awful character, actually. But he had this belief that, you know, nothing could stop him, um, of course, until he died in a boating accident when he was 29 years old. But he just lived this life of, you know, he, he wanted to, to press all the taboos and do whatever he could. Yeah. And this is sort of the markings of the, the romantic movement in many respects. Carrie, hold it there. We're going to take a break. We'll continue on on the other side here. My guest is Dr. Carrie Gress, The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. I'm Al Cresta. We're going to continue in just a moment. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Carrie Gress, the author most recently of The End of a Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. I, I want to go back to this, this reinterpretation of the fall, um, where mm-hmm. Satan becomes, you know, the, the consciousness raiser or the emancipator. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How common a theme is that among these yeah. early feminists? I, this is one of the things that was really fascinating to me was just how much of a hold this, this had on early feminists because um, much of it was was spread through this kind of we would call it new agey culty kind of um, religion is not the right word for it but this belief system created by this woman called um, Madame Blavatsky she was oh, yeah. apparently some sort of Russian noble woman yeah yeah uh, exactly yeah. yeah. So she integrated that into her system, which involved voodoo and all kinds of things. Um, so she involved it in that. And then um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton actually was someone who picked up that idea very deliberately. And she was actually very anti-Christian. Um, she was a big promoter of theosophy. If not directly, she was indirectly. What she she wrote this book with several other women who were actually adherents of theosophy um, that was called the Women's Bible, and it, it's sort of, it, you can still get it now. It's actually kind of comical. It feels a lot like an adolescent girl who's very upset with the Bible, and she just kind of goes through <laughs> and makes commentary on any place where men are mentioned and, you know, and authority. Um, but that was actually highly influential among um, the, the early feminists, and of course, 
Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony are, are considered really the mavens of right. of the movement, of the suffrage movement and all of that. So this wasn't some sort of backwater idea um, that, that wasn't engaged by the movement, but was very much put forward by... Um, by Katie Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. Well, this this is interesting because with Elizabeth Katie Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, you get the you know the first wave uh, feminism, mm-hmm. and that is usually mm-hmm. pointed out as the good feminism. Um, yeah, you know, the, yeah. The, 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 and in contrast right. to what begins in 1969 and gains momentum in the mm-hmm. 70s with uh, Betty right. Friedan. So so. Yeah. Um, I did not know Elizabeth Cady Stanton was in, into theosophy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's pretty amazing when you start seeing all the things that she really was into. I mean, even her idea for the Seneca Falls Convention, which people sort of mark as the the, the right. moment when the movement started, the suffrage movement started. Um, that was, she was very much involved in spiritualism and this idea of the table wrappings. There was this new great awakening happening in the United States after the Civil War and um she is or actually I think that was probably it was before the Civil War, but it, it took off after the Civil yeah, War. Yeah, it begins yeah, it begins in yeah. before the Civil War. But you're right. At the death right. the amount of death of the Civil War has people longing to make contact with the deceased yeah. loved ones. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But that was going on before in New York and she Katie Sant was sitting at a table that was used for these wrappings and she doesn't say explicitly that she got the idea. Um, from the spirits at the spirit table, but that that was what the table was used for, and she was very much in, involved in wow. this movement of the of spiritualism. So, yeah, she's she's a part of that. So she's got the occult piece. Um, she's you know very engaged in anti-Christian activity, and um, then at one point she and Susan B. Anthony are, are you know they're struggling trying to make their version of um, the women's movement be the stronger one. They're fighting with another group who um, was not interested in the racial piece that Susan B. Anthony and mm-hmm. Katie Stanton were promoting. And um, so they bring on this woman, um, Victoria Woodhull, who was called Mrs. Satan by the press, actually, because she was a medium. Um, she had been a prostitute. She had she just was this crazy woman who had been given... A huge amount of of authority and really a platform, so to speak, in New York City, and they bring her on to speak. And what does she talk about? Free love, um, and that you know ended up creating this huge scandal that really ruined and wiped out Katie Stanton's um, authority. And you know, all of she was thrown off of out of her own organization, um, and it really set the suffrage movement back you know thirty years. So I think we've we have this sense that they're you know these were very lovely sanguine women, and when you start looking at it, you know you see the racism, you see the occultism, you see the free love, you see the attacks on religion. You begin to realize that you know something much more sinister was actually going on wow. in the movement at that point than we even realized. It's fascinating. Uh, even Susan B. Anthony. <laughs> Even Susan B. Anthony. Susan B. Anthony was actually sort of a mouthpiece for the movement um, because she didn't come up with the ideas herself. Katie Stanton actually came up with the ideas. Um, and Susan B. Anthony didn't, wasn't married, didn't have children, and so she was able to be the one that would go out and promote them. Um, but so she, she didn't, a lot of the ideas were just Katie Stanton's ideas that Susan B. Anthony mm-hmm. regurgitated. And, okay. You know, it's, a, it's, un, it's difficult because, of course, we hold these women up as great women because they were certainly pro-life. 
Um, but I, I think that there's something much deeper and, you know, maybe this is the reality is that it's not enough just to be pro-life. There's got to be a real understanding of what womanhood is, of, of a proper anthropology, which of course the church has taught us for, you know, centuries. And, um, so that's, I think one of the reasons why things have gone so wrong is because we've gotten off on these bad anthropologies from, um, from the two of them, yeah. and then moving forward, it just keeps getting worse. Was there was there a wing of that uh, first movement, of, you know, first wave of feminism, that uh, tried to ground their thinking in Christian anthropology? You know, there's some of that. I mean, there and there are certainly women in writing and things that are are beautiful um, that are taken from it. But I I sort of tried to stick with the leaders. You know, you don't yeah. go back and read communist history and overlook Stalin and Lenin, you know I mean? Right, <laughs> you have right. to look at who the leaders are and what is being carried down throughout history. And so that's what I really stuck to. But um, yeah, I, I think it's also a very tumultuous period. Like we mentioned, you've got, you know, electricity is just happening. You've had over 600,000 men in the United States killed by the war. You've got, you know, racism is, is an issue. You've got temperance. You've got suffrage. All of these things are really... Um, you know, just so much tumult going on. So certainly you're going to find people who wrote things that were lovely and, and, and good, but that's not really what carried the movement forward. Um, we get coming up then to the 1969 and then into the 70s. Um, mm-hmm. Betty Friedan is usually talked about in her book, The Feminine Mystique, which actually is 1963, um, mm-hmm. So th- this was this second wave of feminism is gestating for a while. Is that right? It, it is actually, and this was another uh, you know area where I was completely blindsided when I finally started digging into it because I certainly knew about Betty Friedan, but I, I had no idea was the deep connection between her and communism. That right. really, you know, feminism and communism had sort of been intertwined for decades by the time that Ferdan is is writing mm-hmm. um, and that was one of the things that I discovered I know uh, you're I'm sure familiar with Bella Dodd who was yes. very deep in the Communist Party and um, she helped set up a organization called Congress for American Women in uh, I think it was the 1930s um, it was all it all happened before Whitaker Cha- the Whitaker Chamber trial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but this organization was really for women they were trying to radicalize if I can use that word or communize women and get them involved so that when the communist revolution happened, they would be sort of the second tier of engagement after the men. They were also trying to get women to stop buying things because they didn't want to promote capitalism. And, you know, Bella Dodd wrote these things very explicitly why this was set up. And eventually the organization had to be shut down because um, it was so clearly Soviet propaganda that the U.S. Congress shut it down. Mm. Um but who was involved in this? Of course, Betty Friedan was involved in this, along with um, Eleanor Flexner, who wrote this book called Century of Struggle, which is sort of considered the history of the feminist movement, but it's it's written from a very Marxist angle. Um, you had a woman whose name is um, Susan B. Anthony II, who was actually Susan B. Anthony's niece, who's involved in it. All of these high-powered uh, women whether it was from academia or politics or from, from commerce, were involved in this. And this is where I, I think a lot of the formation of Fredan happened. Um, but you can really see a lot of the ideas that Bella Dodd made when he, she 
helped set up the American the Congress for American Women actually find their way into the the feminine mystique. I found you know almost line by line an, wow. an exact um, quote that was used in the setting up of Congress for American Women that's explained in the book. Um, so yeah, Ferdan was uh, always claimed to not be involved in politics or interested in women's issues until much later, you know, closer, not like the 1950s. But if you go back and look at her early life, and there was a whole book written about her on this by actually a friend a friend of hers who thought it would be a good idea to expose how this woman was able to get around McCarthy and still promote these communist ideas. Um, oh. So it's a really incredible resource to see how much of the feminine mystique was really focused on trying to get women out of the home, trying to tell, you know, get their freedom through work. This is what the communists believe, and this is what really motivated for Dan was this idea of getting women out of the home. And she knew they wouldn't do it voluntarily, so she had to create an incentive psychologically, which was to say, the home is a comfortable concentration camp, mm. and your freedom is going to be in the workplace outside the home. Years ago, I used to give a lecture on feminism, but focused on... Uh, Betty Friedan, Kate Millett, Jermaine Greer, mm-hmm. um, Gloria Steinem, and mm-hmm. the the thing I remember—I <laughs> don't remember much of what I said, but one thing that I remember came to me as I was preparing for that talk many years ago was that these women ha- had terrible relationships with men prior to mm-hmm. their activism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that was a real thread that, you know, I, I found throughout the whole book. Almost every woman that is engaged, um, that that's featured in the book, had some sort of either issues with their parents, whether it was a mother or father, and then consequently relationship, terrible relationships with um, men and women, unfortunately. Um, really painful, broken, broken lives. And um, it, it, what's interesting is just the, the consistent pattern of the brokenness is, to see how their their effort wasn't to sort of shore up the family or to go back to the Ten Commandments or go back to something um, that could be healing, it was it's always a push to, to liberalize more and to to create more havoc and more brokenness. Yeah. And um, you certainly see that um, Kate Mill- Kate Millett's probably the best example of that. Um, but yeah, it's incredibly sad. Carrie, hold it there. Come back. Continue the conversation. My guest is uh, Carrie Gress. The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. I'm Al Cresto. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresto. With me is Carrie Gress. She is the author of The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. Uh, You know, I I do want to get to restoration uh, in what we can do positively here. But before we go there, I've got to ask you about this notion of gender fluidity and transgenderism. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I know that's created conflict with many feminists who mm-hmm. think that um, you know, men claiming to be women uh, is actually an insult uh, to women. If you take a look at the Caitlyn Jenner uh, interview in Vanity Fair where he says he really enjoys being a woman because he can get together with the girls and talk about their nails 
and hair. <laughs> and so the essence of womanhood is, um, yeah. you know, yeah, looking like Cosmo. So <clears throat> right. what is the relationship between feminism uh, and gender fluidity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think this is a great point and, and really an important one to just see the whole connection. And this is one of the things that I did in the book is really just map through, you know, how do we get from, uh, you know, the suffrage movement up to the, the trans movement and yeah. see them all of a piece. And again, it's this question, how do we become like men? But, um, you know, you get someone like Simone de Beauvoir on the scene who is an existentialist and she believes that people, the biggest thing is authenticity, being authentically mm-hmm. who you are. Um, so you take that and you take some really bad science, um, uh, you know, making this idea that our gender is not, can can somehow be separated from our body, that you can be, you know, a woman trapped in a man's body kind of idea. And suddenly those, those allied and people begin to feel like I just need to be who my authentic self is. Um, and of course, as you just, you know, made plain, Caitlyn Jenner doesn't know the first thing about what it really means to be a woman simply because <laughs> right. fingernails and you know all of that and that's the, the remarkable thing is just what a caricature it is um you know just these very superficial realities of 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 instead of this idea of deeper idea of motherhood which of course we can get into um so that that's really what set it off was this idea of being authentic and some you know bad bad science that we still follow um, with this notion of of being able to sort of switch out your gender or gender being something that doesn't isn't really reflected in the body, mm-hmm. um, and again back to that bad anthropology of the body and soul um, somehow being disconnected or at odds with one another is is really problematic. But again, it came from de Beauvoir and and from others who have certainly promoted and and you know it's important to note too just how much I, I think lesbianism has push this and the the idea of um, sterility is another element of feminism that I think is just really important to start seeing underscored and obviously Margaret Sanger contributed to that Um, but it's you know get all falls under this heading of how do we make women more like men and and getting rid of our fertility is is very much part and parcel of that and that's why we we now are very confused about motherhood and can't figure out you know how does this respond? How does this connect to me as a woman? And I, I don't mean motherhood just biologically, but also psych- psychologically sure. and spiritually as well. Yeah. Um, and that's what you know why we are so comp- confused about what a woman is because of this dis- deep disconnect with who we are biologically as well. Uh, it, I can't imagine that transgenderism is a big uh, issue down in the global south. Um, it, it, <laughs> Yeah. So I I'm just yes. wondering what we know from cultural anthropology about, you know, the the persistence of male and female, the persistence of family. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and it's it, mm-hmm. and how civilization is re- requires uh stability uh in families. Yeah. Yeah, or, no, or I tribes, I guess. So yeah, I gave a lecture to a, a number of bishops recently, and many of them were from Africa, and it was really interesting to see the different responses um, of, you know, a lot of hearty encouragement from, from the African bishops on this score. Um, but yeah, I think this is the the important thing, is just to recognize that this idea, fundamental idea of the family as that basic building block of civilization, and just how easy it is to destroy civilization when you destroy the family. And I think that that has been one of the very earliest 
goals, going back to William Godwin and the French Revolution and, uh, you know, even the influence of the Marquis de Sade, who was highly influential on Kate Millett and this breaking down of taboos. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 easier to control people when they are broken. And I think this is really what we we're seeing manifesting itself in the culture is just so much brokenness and continues to lead to greater brokenness and greater brokenness and, you know, on and on until people finally start saying, we just need to go back to the basics here and figure out what is fundamentally the best for children, what's fundamentally best for men and women. And, you know, if you look at Seneca Falls as as a document, I mean, it's asking for some very basic things for for women, you know, work and public office and voting and all those kinds of things. Well, I think it, some of those things obviously are, are important. I'm not disputing that they should be added, but I think you, you, you swing the pendulum too far the other direction and men need their own Seneca Falls now, you know, in terms of they have no say about what happens to their children if they're aborted or not. They are, many of them are underemployed, you know, those kinds of things. I'm not suggesting that they do this because I don't think they would ever, men would ever do this. But I think that the, it, both of those extremes show why we need the family and why the family is so important because that's what really balances it out, which is not to say that every family is perfect, but it's within the family that you have the, the needs met in a balanced and healthy way. Uh, you know, fa- so families, uh, when we think of families, uh, we think of monogamy. Uh, mm-hmm. We think of sexual restraint. Um, mm-hmm. And you you also, family usually is thinking of the future, uh, the idea of posterity. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So is, is this, is, is it true in, in history and around the world, that societies that emphasize sexual restraint, uh, monogamy, uh, persist, and those who lose this idea of family uh, dissolve? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question, and I've got a whole chapter on this. Um, Some of the, the information I got from this was by a sociologist back in the 1930s, who was not really a theist, he wasn't really looking for answers um, to to buttress some sort of preconceived notion of where things were going to go. But he looked at 86 different cultures, and he was able to pinpoint the moment at which the, the decay started happening. So they, when they, went, they were building cultures, they were absolutely what you just described, this idea of, of, um, of family, of looking to the future, of building, of restraint, all of that, and um, he said after that what happens, and I'll tell you what, what the, the fulcrum was, what the, the main point was in a minute, but he says after that he would see this one point happen in the culture, he knew it would decay, and he said it was so consistent, he, he didn't know if he should cry or laugh when he saw it, because it was, so, it was just always there. Um, but he said after the decay, when the decay happened, what, what took place was people lost their faith, um, they lost reason, and monogamy ended. Um, so the family started fracturing. And the, the the point at which a civilization changes was when the prohibition against premarital sex was gone. When you got rid of that, after that point, you had a, a culture had about 100 years um, to sustain itself until it completely exhausted itself. Uh, because of the fact that our time, you know, there's this economy of time and energy. Yeah. And a culture, when it when it abandons those elements of building, it everything gets sort of gets 
further away and, and fractured. So anyway, it's really interesting to, to look at this research and, of course, yeah. map this onto our own culture and see where we're at. You know, we're absolutely at a stage where monogamy is, you know, is in danger. Um, certainly faith is in danger, and I think reason, you know, yeah. is, is also incredibly fractured um, in our population. So it's it's certainly holding true. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure uh, what the exact numbers are, but it's often said that we're nearing the point where nearly 50% of children are being born to uh, broken families or to single-parent yeah. families. And uh, what becomes of us when young men and women are raised in those irregular situations? Mm-hmm. In their mind, that becomes normal. Yeah. No, absolutely, and I think it also has deeper ramifications for faith also, you know, in terms of if you've never had a father, yes. how do you understand God the Father? If you've never, if you didn't have a good mother, how do you understand Our Lady? And I, I think that's really the, the point of what, you know, Satan has been zeroing in on, is to try to get us to the point where we can't, we don't have faith, and we're, we become incredibly narcissistic and focused on ourselves and our own um, immediate needs, and not in any way having the capacity to to build a family or to to move forward in a healthy way. And it's incredibly sad and and very hard to watch, especially when you know that none of these things are going to be, you know, places of of happiness or peace. Yeah. So let me ask you, what is a woman? What is a woman? Um, Well, of course, there's the standard adult female human. Um, but I, I wasn't really happy with that answer. I thought there we can go so much deeper. Um, I think uh, what a woman is is, you know, she creates a space for people to to become who it is that they were meant to be, and mm-hmm. she does that. She she shelters them um, by loving them, but she also is is nourishing. Um, she is encouraging. You know, all of these kinds of things that mom do best and and you know are dialed into people in their life and um I, again I, I don't think i'm not restricting this to just a, a certain kind of of mom but i think these are skill sets that all women really have and we're all called to mother in a certain way um you know in a very broad way in our workplaces and and we're, you know if we're single it, it's it's applicable to the whole adult life of of women and i, I you know i think we see this very clearly you just mentioned um, the family, or you know, number of family, number of children born into families without two parents um, in the home. Well, we also now ha- just hit the stage where there are actually more pets in homes than there are children. Um, wow. And I think that that really points to the fact that women still have this deep desire to mother something, and it's there's nowhere for it to go. So it's it's expressing itself in pet ownership. And of course, I'm not anti-pet. But when we get to the point where we see women calling themselves dog moms or dog grandmothers or, you know, all the the language that we have, and we're spending, I think the current number is $700 million on pet costumes, you know that something has been channeled in a direction in which it's not, this is not a healthy dynamic. Um, So I I think that that's, you know, it's it's hopeful in that, in the respect that it really does point to the fact that this isn't dead in women. It's still that's this maternal spark is still yes. there. It's just something that we need to start helping women understand what it's really meant to do and the way in which they're meant to 
to mother others, whether it's their own children or um, the people around them, mentor them spiritually. Um, and, you know, this is the beauty of being Catholics, is we have so m- many amazing saints who prov- model this for us, um, whether it's religious, cloistered nuns, um, you know, mother saint, mother, biological mother saints, um, that can show us really how to live this out instead of a sort of grasping at straws or, and trying to reinvent the wheel at this stage in, yeah. in history. Um, well, uh, we're out of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, we covered a lot of ground there. Al. We did, uh, well done. and we'll we'll talk again. I, I, uh, if people uh, should get in touch with you on the whole theology of home uh, work that you're doing, uh, yeah. is it is it is it at the stage of being a movement yet? I think we're getting there, we're pretty close. Yeah, I think uh, I think women want more than what what we're offering, so we're happy to help out at theology of home for sure. All right, thanks, Carrie. Thank you, Al. Carrie Gress, The End of Woman.